I was thinking that the text that I want us to, to look at is this chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but verse 15 in particular is the key verse in the chapter. And it reminds us that, um, that God's church is actually a family. Let me read it to you again. I, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, now that word uh, household, uh, it doesn't mean a building. Uh, God's house is not a building, it's a family. Paul isn't telling us how to behave when we uh, come to church. Uh, he's, Paul's talk about church, people talk about church buildings as, as, as God's house, but you, you'll never find that anywhere in the New Testament. So Paul isn't telling us what we're to do when we turn up at 5 Lefroy Street on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, sometimes the, the chapter is interpreted in that way. But the word household is the word family. And, and the ideal thing is that every, every family should be a church, you know, with the parents acting as prophet, priest and king to their children. So in a lockdown, we can still meet in church in our own homes, in our families. But not only should every family be a church in that sense, but every church should be a family. That's what Paul is showing us here. Uh, the word household is the word family. It's the same word that's used earlier on in the chapter in verse 4 and again in verse 5, when we're told when we choose leaders that we're to look at how a man manages his own household, his own family. So Paul isn't talking about buildings or, or, or the institution of the church. He's talking about how the family of God is to function. Many churches today have quite a deliberately adopted a, a business model uh, for how to do church. And in my opinion, that's a huge, huge mistake. Uh, church is family. You, you try running your family like a business and see what happens. And yet many churches today are run as, as businesses. The pastor is the CEO. Uh, the elders become the, the board of directors. Uh, and in the worst case scenarios, well, people are used and manipulated. And we've seen examples of that recently, haven't we? Some tragic examples. Of course, we want things to be done effectively and, and efficiently. But if you think that spiritual work can be done by corporate power and business principles, then you need to think again. Church is God's family. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy so that we'll know how people ought to act in God's family, in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, so given that, that definition of church as God's household, uh, what kind of leaders do we need to look for? That's what this chapter is about. It's, it's about leadership in the church. And clearly, this is a vitally important matter as far as Paul is concerned. Uh, you notice there in verse one, he says, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, uh, he desires a noble task. It's a trustworthy saying. That's a, a formula that uh, you find in the pastoral epistles. Uh, three times, in fact, in, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul uses that formula. So in, in verse 15, chapter 1, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And then over the page in chapter 4, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 9, he says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Uh, the living God is saviour of all, especially of those who believe. Two great uh, gospel truths, trustworthy sayings. You can uh, pin your life on these things. But then in the middle of these two great gospel truths, these two great statements, he, he puts this one in verse 1 of chapter 3 again. Here is a trustworthy saying, he says, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. And that seems like a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? Uh, at first glance. I mean, how can that possibly be in the same league as the other two uh, trustworthy sayings? Uh, if you were to ask, uh, if I were to ask you, what are the three key truths of Christianity? I don't think you'd put that in there necessarily. But but Paul does. Because who our leaders are and what they do and, and how we recognize them is critically important for Paul. It's a gospel issue. And, and you notice it's not just leadership, it's wanting to be a leader. Did you notice that? That's the key to recognizing potential leaders in a church. They're willing. They're not reluctant. In, indeed, they, they'll already be doing the work. They'll have a heart for the work. That's how you recognize them. They may not even be aware of the fact that you're observing that. But uh, look out for people who are already operating as as, as kind of parents, because that's what a, a pastor is in a church, in a family. Uh, that's what's commended to us here. It's, here's a trustworthy saying, Paul says, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, as Australians, we're often deeply suspicious, of course, of people who aspire to leadership. Um, we prefer reluctant leaders. But Paul says wanting to be a leader is actually a noble thing. It is actually godly, aspiring to leadership in God's family. Now, I want to say three things uh, tonight. Choosing the right leaders is critically important uh, and I, for, for three reasons. First, because the world is watching. Secondly, because the enemy is waiting. Thirdly, because the church is witnessing. Let's have a look at those, those three things, and then there'll be a time for questions and answers afterwards, hopefully. The world is watching us. Uh, you notice Paul begins and ends uh, his list of qualifications for eldership the same way uh, in verse 2 and in verse 7. We saw this last week in Titus. The overseer must be above reproach, must be unimpeachable. Blameless, it says in the King James Version. Not in a pharisaical, holier-than-thou sense. We saw that uh, last week in, in Titus. And, and the reason for this, the reason why uh, the overseer must be above reproach is because leaders are in the shop window. They either commend the gospel or they obscure the gospel. Ellen Glasgow, in her autobiography, uh, tells of her father, who was a Presbyterian elder. Full of rectitude and rigid with duty, she says. <laughs> he was entirely unselfish. And in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. 
Paul, the blameless doesn't mean that. <laughs> Paul is concerned here, you see, with the reputation of the church in the world. He says in verse 7, a bishop or an overseer must be blameless, above reproach, and he must have a good reputation with outsiders. A good reputation with outsiders, because the world is watching us. And what does the world see when it uh, you know, zooms in at a Zoom service like this, or looks through the keyhole, or turns up at one of our meetings? What does the world see when it looks at the church? Now, I think it's fair to say that's not the first thing we think about when choosing leaders. What does the world think? Maybe it's because we don't share the same concern as Paul. See, what is Paul concerned about here in the appointment of leaders? That the church, what is he concerned about in these so-called pastoral epistles? In this 1 Timothy chapter 3. What does he mean when he says, you know, uh, if, if I'm delayed, I want you to know how you should behave yourselves in the church. Uh, what's he, is he concerned about church order? Is that what he's worried about? Uh, is that his primary concern, how the church should be properly organised? No, I don't think so. Paul's primary concern is for the world to be effectively evangelised, especially in the appointment of church leaders. That's top of his agenda. We need gospel men, not churchmen. We need leaders at every level in, in, in church life, if you like, especially in the local level. People who share God's passion for the world to be one for Christ. See, that's godliness. Godliness is to want what God wants. And, and what does God want? Well, we're told over the page in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he wants all people everywhere to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. At the top of Paul's agenda is how do we reach the world with the gospel? And dare I say it, that, that should be top of our agenda. That should be the top of the agenda of every session, every leaders meeting, every presbytery, every general assembly. It's our core business. In appointing leaders, Paul has an eye on the outside world. Or, or to come at it from a different angle, Horatius Bonner once said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. Well, that's good because that's where it's meant to be. But then he went on to say, and I looked for the world and guess what? I found it in the church. That's disastrous. When a boat is in the water, that's good. We want to get this boat into the water. We want to get Soul Church into the world, fishing for souls, <laughs> fishing for men and women. It's a fishing boat. He wants us to be fishers of men, doesn't he? Uh, so we want, when a boat is in the water, that's good. That's how it should be. But when the water gets into the boat, you're sunk, aren't you? Uh, and the church in Ephesus in, is in danger of sinking because they've led into their leadership worldly men with worldly agendas. Men who actually didn't command the respect of those around them in the outside world. And that's been the mistake that, that, sunk, that almost sunk us as a denomination in days gone by. And we must never repeat that mistake. So look with me again at this list in verses 2 to 7. Because sometimes people say, you know, when they look at these qualifications here in verses 2 to 7, they say, well, I, I couldn't possibly live up to that. I couldn't possibly be an elder in the church. Really? 
Look what it says there, not violent, not given to drunkenness. You'd get thrown out of the pub if that's the way you're behaving. There's nothing particularly godly about not being violent or not being given to drunkenness, is there? This is not some high standard that we've got to live up to. It's the sort of behaviour that the world expects of us. It's often been pointed out by the commentaries that, that this list of qualifications for leadership here in, in 1 Timothy 3, it's very similar uh, to the list of virtues in circulation in society generally. Uh, and isn't it so often the case? You know, you, you see it in the newspapers all the time. The world recognises certain standards. It doesn't always live up to those standards, but it expects us to. Isn't that right? And if our church leaders don't even live by the standards recognised in society at large, well, the church loses all credibility, doesn't it? And so does the gospel. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. The credibility of the gospel before the watching world. We must have leaders whose lives are not a stumbling block to the watching world. Because the world is watching, the world is looking in. And so we have to be careful about who we put into the shop window. That's the first thing. The world is watching. But then secondly, the enemy is waiting. See, not, uh, not, uh, not only are our leaders in the shop window, so to speak, but they're, they're also in the front line. They're in the firing line. So Paul warns us in verses 6 and 7, do you see? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the devil's trap. Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion prowling around, seeking to devour whom he will. And oh, what a tasty snack there is for him here in verse 6, isn't there? A new convert made too much of too soon, thrust into prominence, puffed up with pride. You can almost see Satan smacking his lips in anticipation, can't you? We've got to be very careful about this. I think we've made mistakes in this way more recently in, in, uh, in our challenge to ministry uh, conferences. We, we've got to be very careful about this, encouraging young men into ministry before they're ready. Not a novice, Paul says. Why? Well, because the devil gobbles them up for breakfast. That's why. And sometimes, I think in today's church, we, we dress them up and serve them to him on a plate. Now, of course, it's all relative. Uh, it's not just a matter of age. Uh, it's to do with spiritual maturity, isn't it? Because in the very next chapter, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone despise his youth. So this isn't about age as such. Spurgeon says in, in his lectures to my students, some are born with their beards already grown. Um, you can be 70 and immature as a Christian. You can be 70 and still a new convert, still a novice in the things of God. On the other hand, you can be a young Whitfield or Wesley. These men were preaching to thousands in their early 20s. Or a Spurgeon who was ordained at the age of 16 and leading a church in London when he was just 19 years of age, preaching to thousands of people. So it's not to do with chronological age, it's to do with spiritual maturity. So not a novice. 
not a new convert. And why is this so important? Well, it's because we're in a battle. We're in it's spiritual warfare. And our leaders, they're not only in the front, they're not only in the shop window, so to speak, they're in the firing line. Paul talks about this in, in Ephesians 6, the great passage on spiritual warfare. You remember what he says there to the Christians in Ephesus? He, he exhorts them to put on the gospel armor and to stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, but the context, have you ever noticed the context in which he says all this? The context is very significant. It's very interesting. He, it's the passage where he talks about husbands and wives and their relationships, the husband and the wife, parents and children. Slaves and masters, or bosses and workers, if you like, to contemporize it. In other words, and I think it's important for us to see this, the arena in which spiritual warfare takes place is it's in the realm of our personal relationships. It's... The, the arena in which this warfare takes place, it's in the home and in the workplace. You know, we've been so used to these, um, you know, these dramatic, uh, uh, unbiblical uh, movies about, uh, you know, demons inhabiting cities and hiding under beds and frightening people. That, that's not what the way that Paul talks about spiritual warfare. He, he talks about husbands being the husband that God wants them to be. Wives being the wife that God wants them to be. That's what we struggle with. Workers working uh, for their boss as God wants them to be working. Uh, there's a lovely ex uh, an example of, of what I'm trying to say here. Uh, Festo given Kevin Gary was Archbishop of Uganda at one time. And he, he tells a story of how uh, one day he was going out to, uh, to preach. But he'd had a blazing row with his wife just as he was about to go out and uh, the congregation was waiting for him. And as he walked out of the door to get into his car, having had this blazing row with his wife, the Holy Spirit whispered in his ear, okay, you go to church, I'll stay with your wife. <laughs> See, that's, that's the point. If our relationships are wrong, in our homes, if we're not uh, aiming to be the husband that God wants us to be, the worker that God wants us to be, we're casualties in, in the spiritual warfare. A, a preacher who is not reconciled to his wife and is always having you know, arguments with his wife behind closed doors cannot stand in the pulpit and preach with any degree of power or authority. The devil's one, the devil's laughing up his sleeve, do you see? We need to understand this whole process of, of choosing leaders. It's you know, In the world, you, you go for a job interview uh, and they won't ask you about your private life or your personal relationships or your, your sexual purity. There are laws against doing that. People's confidentiality and all that. And political correctness and all that. All that matters in the, in the secular world is that you can get the job done. But, but when it comes to the church, what matters well, it's not what you're like in front of the congregation in public. Can you tell a good joke and give people a, an appealing smile or put on a good show? What matters is what you're like at home and in your closest relationships with those who know you most intimately. 
This is serious. The devil hates Christian leaders. He will attack their homes and their families. He'll do everything he can to discredit them and mock them. Uh, no doubt we've had, all had a good laugh, haven't we, at uh, some of the, the TV um, vicars that you sometimes see. Uh, it's, it's the devil's caricature of a Christian leader. He's, he's got leaders in his sights. So we need to choose carefully. We need to think carefully if we're, if we're desiring this, this, this position, this work. We need to choose carefully because the world is watching us and it matters what the world thinks of us. And the enemy is waiting to pounce on us and to destroy the work through us. So this is a serious business. And the last point is this. The world is watching, the enemy is witnessing, and the, ch- uh, the enemy is waiting, rather, and the church is witnessing. That's what we're here for. Just as Israel is, is, in the Old Testament was to be a light to the nations, so the church in the New Testament is to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. You know, like a show home on a new housing estate. All around, uh, buildings are under construction. And, and there is this show home standing there to show you what the rest of that building site will look like one day. And, and that's what church is. It's God's show home. God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the instrument that he uses to that end is the church. Look how the chapter ends. Verse 15, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is not a seller to conceal the truth, said Spurgeon. It's a pillar to display the truth. The truth as it is in Jesus. In Trafalgar Square there in in the heart of London, There's a statue of Lord Nelson standing on a column, 180 foot high, a natural gathering place for tourists and for pigeons. And it's uh, it's erected. It was erected in the mid 19th century to honor a famous man and to commemorate a famous victory. And that's why we are here, Paul is saying to us in these verses, for the very same same reason. That's why we gather. That's why we interact with one another. We, we don't come to church at 5 Lefroy Street. We are church 24 hours of the day, seven days a week. And we are that because we want to hold up to the watching world Jesus Christ and him crucified. We want to honour this famous person and commemorate and celebrate his famous victory. See what it says there in verse 16? This is a, another one of the great three sixteens in the Bible, isn't it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Notice how it focuses on Jesus being made known, manifest in the flesh, in his incarnation, believed on in the world through the gospel preaching. See, that's the point that Paul wants to make here. That the mystery of godliness he said, it's not about myths and genealogies and conspiracy theories and all the rest of it, which some of these people were into if you read through the rest of the chapter. It's not about that. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's a message not for insiders to squabble over and divide over and disagree over. It's not a message for insiders. It's for outsiders. 
See, some people would like to read 1 Timothy, as I said earlier, as a manual of church order or a handbook on church polity, but that's to miss the point altogether. Paul's interest here is not in ecclesiology or in church outreach. His interest is in evangelism and, and church outreach, not church order. And so as God's house of God's family, we're to, by lip and by life, we're to speak it out and we're to live it out before the watching world, the truth as it is in Jesus. God wants this church, every church, to be a bastion for the truth, not in a flag-waving, jingoistic, we're all sound here sort of way, but so that the world might be saved. So let me ask you as I, as I close, are you a part of God's household? I'm not asking, do you come to church? I'm asking, are you part of God's family here at Soul Church? What does the psalmist say? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Well, you, don't, you can do better than that because you know, Paul says you're not just on the door. You're actually in the door. You're in God's household. Once we were prodigals far from home, but now God has brought us home to himself. And if that's so, if God has brought you into his family, what do you aspire to? Do you just sit there and vegetate? <laughs> or, are, or do you aspire to something? What do you aspire to? You see, don't look at this chapter and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not one of the leaders. I'm glad I don't have to worry about things like what? Gentleness, <laughs> patience, faithfulness to my wife and children. Shouldn't we all aspire to that? See, there's nothing in this chapter that's not required of all of us, all of God's uh, people, self-control, hospitality, gentleness, knowing what I believe and, and why I believe it, even the ability to teach others. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews says? He says, by now, you should all be teachers. You see, leadership is, is what we should all aspire to in this sort of way. Leadership is not about being the cleverest or the funniest or the most able or the most dynamic sort of people. It's about serving others, putting your hands up to fill the rosters, taking initiatives in welcoming people instead of waiting for someone else to do it. You know, how often have you heard people say uh, in churches, you know, why don't they do something about it? Well, who do you think they are? It's us. We are the church. So ask yourself then, this question, what kind of a church would my church be if everyone was just like me? <laughs> what kind of a church would my church be if everyone was just like me? So let's aspire to that, shall we? What, what are you aspiring to? Do you have a heart to make Christ known? Do you want everyone under your leadership, everyone within your sphere of influence to come to a knowledge of the truth? Someone once said, the only ability God needs is availability. So will you make yourself available or are you going to leave it to others? <laughs> Whatever you do, don't leave it to the professionals. Remember what John Piper said, brothers, we, we are not professionals. We're a family, we're not a business. I write these things to you, Paul says, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I've written so that you'll know how people ought to act in God's household, in God's family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth.